Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk. Recently, we have been talking a lot about mergers and acquisitions and have been witness to some gigantic deals in this industry, including that of RWS acquiring SDL. We have covered that in detail in a recent episode. Today, we will be covering the subject of exit strategy and why every entrepreneur should have that in the back of their mind. Every journey starts with the first step, but if you don't know your destination, you're lost and business is the same. If you don't know when you're reaching your goal and how do you move on, you haven't planned well. My guest today is Olga Blasco. She knows the subject like the back of her hand and she will talk about why it is important to have an endgame. Olga has 25 years of language services industry experience in rapid growth and M&A driven environments with large US-based private and public LSPs. As a Barcelona native, Olga studied translation and interpreting in the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona and joined the language services industry in 1996 as a translator on Apple projects. From 2000 to 2006, Olga quickly rose through the ranks and held senior leadership positions with Berlitz, Baun, and at Linebridge, where she was Global Language Services Manager and Business Unit Manager. Whilst at We Localize, from 2006 to 2014, Olga built complex 24-7 global supply chains to deliver large volumes of multilingual content for global brands to reach local audiences around the world. During her eight-year trajectory from director to senior vice president of supply chain and production business units, WeLocalize rolled out its M&A strategy and made eight acquisitions on three continents. Today, Olga continues to help LSP and language technology founders and CEOs achieve their growth and exit plans with a focus on investments in talent, technology, and M&A. Since 2017, Olga has partnered with Lion People Global to deliver long-term value to founders and CEOs by helping them navigate the complex M&A process with M&A buyer and seller advice and preparation services, buyer and seller matching, deal facilitation, and post-close integration planning. As a global nomad who speaks seven languages and still finds time to be a social entrepreneur, Olga is known for asking questions such as, what's your end game? Or if you had a magic wand, what would you change? She helps entrepreneurs understand their purpose and can clearly articulate it that they can set everything on course to achieve life-changing goals. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Olga. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, it's, a, it's a windy night at my end, so if you hear some wind kind of whirling outside my window, <laughs> that's the reason why. Uh, I totally understand. So, Olga, uh, while well, uh, your your bio has been read at the beginning and uh, everyone knows you in our industry, let me hear you introduce yourself and tell the listeners what are you up to these days. Okay. So, I mean, most of my time is invested in helping business owners to increase the value of their companies and to right. fulfill their end game uh, through the right investments in uh, people, so talent, technology, and M&A. Uh, most engagements are confidential, but there is one that is public knowledge, which is uh, Aglatech 14, a company headquartered in Milan, which has doubled in size in the last three years or so. Um, I also uh, work as the M&A expert at Lion People Global, and I help facilitate deals between buyers and sellers. And we currently have a masterclass series uh, going on on um, uh, LinkedIn, and it has been published on Slater as well. Uh, I'm board member of Translators Without Borders in Ireland, which has recently rebranded as Cleatech. And my role there is to support the strategic development of the organization as a technology hub in Ireland to support uh, the mission of this nonprofit organization. And I'm also a social entrepreneur as uh, Jana co-founder. I build, develop and implement sustainable business models for social enterprises run by female entrepreneurs with funding from the EU, uh, international organizations and financial institutions. Wow, you are busy. Thank you so much for that introduction. How has the industry changed since you started working uh, in localization? Well, it has changed a lot uh, in the last 25 years. Uh, I think that 
Um, primarily, it's because the, the value has shifted from what I would call brute force <laughs> to tech-enabled because it started with, you know, building large kind of teams in, in large companies, you know, like IBM and Microsoft and uh, large translation departments uh, in the 1980s. Uh, then, I mean, there was a service industry developed around it in the 90s. Uh, then a lot of technology was developed and clearly the internet was a turning point because, you know, we have gone uh, from dial-up to, you know, 5G mobile broadband and speed, I think, has made uh, internet what it has become, uh, which is now, I mean, centered to absolutely everything. Um, and... Around the, the year 2000, there was all this technology built, and I think that it led to this, you know, uh, by the year 2010, uh, it, it became like the, the age of platforms and the era of integration of different systems. And we have seen how some of those systems, like TMS and MT, uh, and more recently, of course, neural MT technologies, have had fits and starts, and uh, I think that there has been all this kind of S-curve of adoption, you know, like you have the early adopters and then everybody else kind of follows suit. And, you know, machine translation is one of the examples of those things that have been radically transformed in the last 10 years uh, and has radically transformed things in our industry. And right now, um, we are in bang in the middle of this fourth industrial revolution with um, this age of convergence in like the 2020s, I mean, the convergence of human and machine. And I think that everybody uh, has been uh, brought into this, you know, making quality at speed possible, making scale and real-time customization uh, possible. And this is unprecedented because, I mean, before, like I said, I mean, brute force, uh, it was a lot of people, a lot of talented people put together to make things happen. But now, the scale is unprecedented, the complexity is unprecedented, there's a lot of disruption uh, across the board. And I think that with the advance of machine learning and artificial intelligence, we're heading towards this, you know, hyper-personalization of the age of singularity and augmented humans or human in the loop, like I hear, you know, recently in different publications, where Machines will be doing all the hard work while humans will be focused on what they do best, which is, you know, really caring about uh, making solutions possible uh, in the market. Understood. And uh, that being said, uh, is our industry uh, responding to these pivotal changes in the right way? I think that typically large companies are uh, because they they have uh, put you know all the preparation in place because they have senior staff in place they have boards in place they have you know uh, sophisticated shareholders on board and and i think that you know all that there's all the all the super leaders you know that are uh, kind of showing the way i think that companies that are at the other end of the scale and, and particularly companies that are below you know, $10 million. And remember that it's a highly fragmented market. So there are thousands of companies below $1 million. I don't think that they necessarily go through such preparation because they they need to engage external parties. I mean, like they may be very attuned to what's going on, but they need to bring people that have that kind of higher view or have the experience of having worked, you know, in the, in the larger companies and in the market for a long time to guide them a little bit. Because, I mean, I think preparation is underestimated in a lot of cases. I mean, like the, the number of things you need to pay attention to. Understood. Now, Olga, let's zoom in on our topic of discussion for today, which revolves around why is it actually important to have an end game or an exit strategy? Give me a brief rundown of what is going on in our industry M&A-wise. Is there enough preparation happening by owners? I think that the like the, the preparation needs to be understanding, you know, what you, what you want and where you want to go. So, for example, right. if you want to grow, sometimes you may need to sell in order to grow. I mean, sell to, for example, private equity. You, you may need you you, don't, you you may need to make that kind of deal in order to have you know the 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 capacity to acquire companies or to invest in you know huge sales teams and marketing etc. Uh, sometimes I mean you need to think I mean do I really 
I mean, do I want to sell to another company? Like basically like the end game is sell to another company that will take my business to where I couldn't take it just on my own. And sometimes um, it's just a matter of, you know, I'm retiring and, and I'm, I'm bringing this company that I have built with hard work to a safe harbor, but I will hand it over and they will continue, you know, without me. And I think that understanding the implications of making this type of choice uh, needs, you know, a little bit of thought and, and careful advice because uh, you need to understand what's in it and whether you are prepared to do, you know, certain things or what you are not prepared to do at all. And, and uh, that being said, um, you know, let's go back and take a look at everything chrono chronologically. An entrepreneur starts a business with lots of excitement in our industry. Usually it starts with the fact that they have found some good clients that they can sell to. Why should they be thinking about leaving that baby one day and move on? I think if, if, you, if you don't manage the business to that point where you can hand it over, never mind to whom, I mean, maybe you, you're handing it over to somebody else in your family, to a business partner, you are handing it over to a buyer. If you don't contemplate that possibility and you don't manage to it, you are hampering the chances of survival once you depart. I mean, some people think that the fact that they are uh, paramount to the success of their company is a blessing right. and it can be a blessing, but it can also be the one reason as to why it will not succeed without you. So I think that you do need to prepare, you know, for that succession or for that sale and you need to be ready for when the time comes, you know, making the right decisions. Otherwise, your departure could mean that the business will blow away into pieces. And you don't want that. I mean, because actually you want to be able to capitalize on what you've built. Understood. Now, strategy is best done when you know where you're going. So how many entrepreneurs in our industry really have a clear sight of the direction of their business? Um, I mean, I don't keep stats, uh, but I do see surveys that are being published, you know, on different uh, on different media. And sometimes I'm frankly surprised at the at the answers uh, because because the answers typically uh, refer to this more conservative approach. Uh, so some of the you know some of the things that I'm seeing there show that a minority of entrepreneurs are really early adopters or are disruptors, you know, and everybody else kind of follows suit. So I would say that it is a minority, like let's say 20% that may be very clear or they have sought advice in order to be ahead. And maybe there might be another 25% that realize that they need help or they need to implement some kind of a change. And I think that, um, you know, everybody else is attuned to what's going on, but they might be more kind of the ones at the at the at the tail end. And sometimes there is a little bit what, what I call the trap of the echo chamber. Uh, and this is a mistake that I have made myself and that I recognize very quickly, which is sometimes you're telling yourself, ah no, that will not take hold or you know this is just a fad and it will pass. But basically, like this thing that I have is, is going to be the, the, the thing that is going to help my sales. And sometimes, I mean, you're holding on to that and you are, you are discussing it with people that will agree with you, you know, without realizing that, you know, the, the writing is on the wall, that there are certain things that are just going to, uh, you know, become uh, the thing, you know, in five years time. And if you don't prepare for it, it might be too late. So I think that um, uh, the minority, you know, have a clear sight and others, they are just reacting. And I wish there would be more companies that would just, you know, be more uh, sort of like on the side of uh, let's, let's see, you know, if we can get ahead uh, before the others do, because it's an industry that is highly fragmented, but it's also highly competitive. Let's not forget that. Right. It, as a, you mentioned something very interesting. You said this is a very highly fragmented and competitive industry at the same time. But this industry is known to be slow in adoption and innovation. And uh, when we talk about uh, pioneering or leading the change, 
it, it's this industry is not known for that. Why is that? Why are we so slow and, and accepting that there is a pivotal change coming our way and preparing for it? I think that um, it's mainly it's mainly due to the the fact that the the the, the translator kind of mindset uh, is mainly conservative. I mean, when I say conservative, it means that it's it's kind of like it clings on to you know some of the things that are part of the uh, you know like what works well. And there are a number of things that work really well. And I remember the time when even translation memory became the norm and uh, and some people were, were saying it was a threat to, to our profession. I started off as a linguist, so I know that and I remember those times. And I, I was kind of saying, no, this is going to allow us to work better and, and to deliver better. And don't you wish that machines would do some of the more tedious work for you? I mean, so that you can use your, your, your brain to solve the more difficult problems that probably will take a few more decades, you know, for technology to resolve by itself. And I think that a lot of, um, a lot of the businesses have been built, you know, by, by people from the industry that have lived, you know, in that kind of, um, environment where the the craft uh, and and the service uh, you know to the client uh, meant that a lot of the things needed kind of careful consideration and and just any, applying any technology is not going to help clearly disruptive technology you know it takes a while you know before the the the, the drawbacks or the cons uh, become, you know, so mitigated that the advantages, you know, are the ones that, that take over and, and promote adoption. But I, I, I have always wished that there would be, you know, less fear, you know, of change, you know, in our industry. And I have always been trying to encourage people, you know, to experiment and embrace the moonshot thinking. Absolutely. It's it's sad that uh, an industry that delivers so much value goes so much unnoticed. And and I think uh, that, that thinking can be changed if we become uh, pioneers and develop innovation and introduce innovation as well, not only in our practices, but also outside our industry in terms of our solutions. So uh, in your opinion, do you think that uh, the new generation, the generational shift that's happening, that would be a good opportunity to introduce innovation, to introduce a new line of thinking. And just getting back to the subject of our discussion today with M&A, do you think M&A plays a role in innovation? I think so, because, you know, when you think about it in our industry, there have been several waves, you know, of M&A and consolidation. I mean, and right. every time, every time that there has been like a crisis, uh, there's always that opportunity, you know, for M&A, for, you know, bigger companies, you know, to merge and, and to become like bigger, kind of gain the market share and, and, to, and to bring forward, you know, certain ways of working that bring all that adoption forward. And I think that for, for every generation that experiences that, you know, there is a wave of innovation as well. And, um, you know, just a few years ago, I mean, this is not so long ago. I mean, like neural MT became really, really good less than a decade ago. I mean, That's before right. that, it was before that it was it was just almost like wishful thinking. But I mean, but I remember at the time that we were kind of trying things out, and then the 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 the, the qualitative leap that it made, you know, I mean, through companies uh, that that were kind of really bringing this forward. And I mean, Google was one of them, I mean, through uh, like the acquisition of DeepMind and all that, but even like the, the, the large LSPs, you know, working with machine translation providers that had embraced, I mean, we all had to bite the bullet at some point and say, what if we deploy this into right. 27 languages and we pilot it and see what happens? Um, and but it takes two to tango. So you, you actually have to find clients that want to do that. And then you have to find LSPs that are ready to invest in that. And then the LSPs have to basically engage, you know, their supply chains into experimenting together. I mean, and this is the kind of changes that 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 bring this kind of disruption about because you can have the, the 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 best technology. You can have you know the 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 best minds in the industry kind of working together. But if there is no adoption, 
that's it. Uh, so I think that you can only make compelling cases when you are, you know, trying something and then you see, you know, that there are green shoots and then you try again and it just gets better and better. So the new generations, I think they are used to technology. So technology is part of their lives. It's not like, you know, me that, I mean, when I, you know, when I, when I was in high school, I was still using a typewriter, but, uh, um, but, but still, you still need the, the mindset, you know, even if you have technology at your fingertips, you need the mindset in order to, uh, you know, bring changes forward. Understood. Let me ask you another question with regards to timing. And during the normal life cycle of language organization, in your opinion, Olga, when is the right time to think about an exit strategy? I think that you need to align your, um, I think that you need to align all the time your personal, professional and company goals with yourself. I do this, you know, with clients. I mean, when sometimes they are a little bit lost or they have some contradiction, like I personally, I want to have more free time, but, but then, I mean, I want to sell my company for the highest value. And sometimes you kind of say like, well, I mean, maybe in order to sell for the highest value, you might need to put in, you know, some of your personal time and effort for a period of time to make it happen. You know, you, you may not be able to have it both ways. Sometimes, that alignment is not only with yourself, but you need to be aligned with your business partners. You need to be aligned with your family, you know, with That's your spouse, right. with your with your children. You, you need to you need to realize, you know, if I want to make this happen, I need to plan for it. So I think that that's the first kind of a hard thing. And then if you're not ready, which is perfectly legitimate, I mean, maybe maybe it, you just get up one day and you kind of say, I think I should start thinking about this, which is fine. Then I think that you need to think: Are you prepared to work on it? And if you don't, if you don't know, you know where to start or, or, or how to make this kind of alignment, are you are you ready to seek help? You know, like uh, from, from people, from professionals that can guide you through this. Do you understand what buyers look into? Because maybe some things that you place a lot of importance on, maybe the buyer will not look at it or will not consider it a, a high value driver. Uh, even do you understand how you need to present, you know, your company in the best light in order to sell? So sometimes, you know, for some companies, and, and I've had this conversation with business owners that basically said, you know, I realized that the amount of work I had to do and I realized all of a sudden that if I wanted to sell my company, it would take me two to three years to prepare because it's, it may, it's not just kind of having the right accountant or, 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 you know, the right financial advisor or, or the good lawyer fit. I mean, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, if I want to sell for this, I need to be able to show that my company can do this, that my clients can grow to this. And all of these things, you know, may not happen in just a few months. If you have been doing all this work all along because you have been really intentional, then good for you. You might right. be able to, to just get ready in a, in a, in a jiffy. But for a lot of companies, it takes that kind of mindset preparation and then the work that needs to happen and then engaging, you know, with the buyers and, and engaging into this kind of courtship. So you, you just touched upon this, but let's dig a little bit deeper. What factors does the entrepreneur need to keep in mind in order to formulate an exit strategy? So I think that you, you need to really be clear about your value drivers and, and some people they may think that they are that they are valuable, that their business is valuable because of X, Y, Z. But in fact, it might be uh, much more than that, or 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 that basically they, they might have this idea uh, of what buyers look for that is not aligned with the with what the market is asking for, or they might be sitting on a raw diamond and they right. need that kind of validation. And I have encountered these cases where some companies say. I've never thought of buying. I just thought I would keep going, you know, for a few more years. And then they tell you about their company and you kind of say like, do you know that you could, you could possibly get this much? I mean, if you go to markets, I mean, just based on what you've built. And I always define the raw diamonds in this way. So first of all, if you have a clear niche and you have potential to grow, I mean, because of your own investment, but I mean, if a buyer buys you and invest, you can grow more. If you've earned a good reputation, your brand is valuable. Like your brand is synonymous to 
great service, great quality. They know what they're doing. The fact that you could attract new clients, a buyer could leverage, you know, from you in order to expand, you know, their own business, or they can grow your existing clients or your existing clients will, will attract new clients. If you have presence in markets that are hot, some markets are hot uh, by, their, by their definition and, and there is a lot of demand in order to have a foothold in that market. And then if you have people in your team that are considered experts, people that can talk to clients in their own language, that can have the right conversations and they can help shape the way decision makers buy and that's already in there, then, I mean, you have, mm, you have a lot. If right. on top of that, if on top of that, you're tech enabled because you've built, you've bought uh, and it propels your delivery, it's even better. Right. So that, that if you have, you know, all these ingredients kind of sussed out, um, you can present that to companies and I'm sure that buyers will be able to, you know, tell you immediately, oh yeah, I'm interested or not. If you don't know, then, you know, I think that you need somebody to hold a mirror, I mean, to help you, you know, see, you know, where uh, you stand out, you know, for value. Very well put. Now, Olga, do you think that there is a certain degree of business knowledge and acumen that's needed in order to make better judgment calls on when to exit? I think so, that you require, either you have acquired that experience in your, in your lifetime through your career, your exposure, uh, you know, whatever companies that you have spoken to that are, you know, attending the same conferences, I mean, friends, etc., or that you, you can hire that expertise, you can hire consultants, you can hire, you know, senior staff. But I also think that you need, um, you need to trust your gut. I mean, in, in, in the sense that some people, when, when you ask them, do you really think you're ready? Uh, because they can say, well, I mean, I've been told, you know, my, my expertise is kind of uh, uh, very much sought after and I have a nice portfolio of clients and I'm in a nice kind of location and all of these. But then, I mean, you know that you have not been growing, that you have plateaued. Do you think that a buyer will not ask questions about that? I mean, as in how come your growth basically has slowed down so much in the last couple of years or how much or, or how much your profit has taken a hit whenever you wanted to increase your sales. So I think that you should trust your gut and say, you know, maybe I need to do something or maybe I need to seek this kind of validation. So there is that mix of expertise and your gut because deep down, I think that people know. I think that deep down people know. And, and when I work with some people that claim not to know, when you work with them, you know, uh, for a while, I mean, they do, they do know when they're ready and when they're not. Lots of companies start small, stay small, and then disappear when the entrepreneur starts a different line of business, um, retires or whatever happens. Do you think that the entrepreneur can squeeze value out of the assets, however small and few they may be, that they have developed by selling it? If they have those qualities that I spoke of earlier, like the right. Rhode Island qualities, I mean, for sure, yes. I mean, if you can show your, your potential, your client portfolio, that you're tech enabled, uh, like the, the value of your, of your market positioning in a particular geo, uh, then absolutely, yes. Um, if, if you are lacking some of these things or some of those things could be developed further, I think that you should maybe think twice before selling the company because you might be met with offers that that probably don't meet your expectations. So I think that you need you need to really see how many boxes you could check, you know, for the buyers out there looking to buy companies. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. I have asked this question from uh, Paul Doherty, who is an MA guru in our industry, along with Christian Juani. Like he was. Uh, uh, Christoph Giovanni, he was here on the show uh, not too long ago. Both of them are great leaders. What are buyers not getting right 
how should they formulate their realistic expectations for a successful merger? Yes, I know. I've heard Paul's statistics on on the the, the deals that don't go right. Um, I think that the the success of a deal uh, can be largely attributed to how the transaction was developed and closed in the first place, because I think that for everybody involved. I mean, especially, you know, the, the buyer's team, including the financial backers, uh, etc. They need to be satisfied with the fact that the target was the right choice. Um, that, that, that the target's value and potential are clear. And that the structure of the deal will facilitate the integration rather than hinder the integration. So the key areas uh, are justifying you know be able to justify the transaction rationale at all times uh, defining the culture that the merged entity that the, the resulting entity is going to have and make sure that you have you know the champions of that culture very clear you know with lines of accountability and that you have a proper integration plan i know that paul talks a lot about this and i completely concur so to summarize, I would not underestimate uh, the issues that can arise during integration based on things that have not been properly ironed out earlier on in the process. I mean, and this goes for buyers and sellers alike. And I think that in a lot of cases, um, companies are tasking their executive teams, and I have been there, <laughs> um, with dealing with you know, uh, an acquisition and carrying on with business as usual. And I think, you know, when when you have a lot of that dynamic going on, uh, I can speak from experience that you need all the help that uh, that you can get. And right. for sure, the accountability lines need to be clear because basically otherwise it can it can send people spinning in all sorts of directions and you don't really want that. If we look on the flip side, uh, companies normally enter an acquisition deal because they see value in the company that they are buying. It could be anything from expanding geographic footprint uh, to operational scalability or strategic. Uh, does any entrepreneur does an entrepreneur stand a chance for a good acquisition deal if they have not focused enough on developing unique aspects of their business, creating a niche for themselves? Usually not. I mean, just kind of referring to what I said earlier about, uh, you know, having distinct kind of value drivers. But having, right. having said that, uh, you could get lucky. I mean, you could you could basically find yourself, uh, you know, in the right place at the right time when a buyer absolutely must have a foothold in a particular geography and you happen to have something that they can afford in the place that they want. So sometimes you can get lucky and there are opportunistic deals like that. And I think that, you know, for owners that think, oh God, I wish I had mm, invested more in, in growing my client portfolio, but there is a buyer that is still interested in whatever they have built, then if they're lucky, they should capitalize on that luck. Uh, so, I mean, it's horses for courses. I mean, and. Yeah, I, I know of a few such lucky deals, as in somebody shows up and says, I want to buy you. And, you know, surprisingly, it went ahead. What increases the value of an organization for acquisition? Um, Olga, there are companies in, in our industry that try to just be wholesalers of translation services for other translation companies. And although they're really good at producing that work, they don't have that unique market share um, that, that you just mentioned about. Uh, well, there are other companies that are selling directly to end clients and, and people want to buy them because they have those relationships. Yeah. Does an organization that have a good set of skills that it's offering as a wholesale, does it stand a chance for acquisition? LSPs that work for other LSPs, I mean, like the, the, the biggest ugly truth that I can, that I can say <laughs> is that, of course, for any company that is interested in, 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 in your setup, means that the other clients may go away the moment you belong to one. So um, LSPs that, that, that work for other LSPs are good, like coming together, you know, one selling to another or merging together, or perhaps, you know, selling uh, to an organization that is from outside the industry. So let's just say there is a there is a company that offers, you know, certain 
kind of um, manage services to, uh, I don't know, financial clients, and one of those services happens to be translation, they may be interested in, in an LSP that services other LSPs because they are not directly competing, you know, with the with the clients of this uh, of this target company, and they will be acquiring the company for expertise. Um, but at the same time, I mean, like the, there's also the consideration of companies that say, um, "I don't need to buy; I can grow organically." I mean, and there are loads of examples of companies that 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 have a direct client portfolio. And they grow organically without having to acquire. I mean, and I know a few examples of those. And I think that um, in order to decide if you are, uh, you know, going to continue to do that or if you're going to buy another company uh, or if you're going to sell, you know, instead of trying to continue to grow, you, I think you need to put things on the scales. And you need to say, well, I mean, if I, like, if I invest in a Kika sales team, and, and a good marketing strategy, could I could I grow, you know, without having to acquire another company? And if the answer is yes, you know, why why not? I mean, like you you could you could basically make make a calculation and say instead of spending this on an acquisition, I can spend this on a team and go for it. Um, but if if I can put it in the like in the cold light of day, I mean, everybody's different. For some people, to put that kind of or to seek that kind of investment or to put that kind of an effort may be satisfying and attainable, whereas for others it might be too much hard work. I think that whenever somebody says, am I willing to put in this amount of hard work into this in order for it to happen organically? If the answer is yes, why not Tr try? I mean, you, you, as, you are always in time to acquire. If the answer is no, uh, then, you know, measure your stamina <laughs> <laughs> and consider, you know, how far you're willing to go. And if if you don't think you can make it happen just organically by a company, if you don't think that you can grow your company to the extent that you want it to, maybe it's time to sell, you know, to a company that will help you achieve that goal. Great insights. Uh, as a business owner, at the end of the day, the entrepreneur wants to make money. Now, Olga, how do they calculate their profitability from running the organization versus from a sale? Is there a formula? How do they know that it, they should be selling? I think it's related to to what I just mentioned. I mean, in kind of measuring your stamina. I don't think that there is a formula, but quite simply, like if, if for example, if I say I want to invest in sales and technology in order to grow my top line by two million, and enable profitable scale and i think that i can do that i mean that i can make it happen then i mean if you do that uh, you will build more value you know maybe right. you should hold off selling because maybe your, your your company will be a lot more valuable you know um two or three years down the line um and and that will be you know good effort you know well spent but i think that you need to to have that kind of advice to to realize that a buyer will 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 offer you know a purchasing consideration that will meet your expectations based on the effort that you've put in you know based on the the portfolio you've built etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't think that there is a standard formula for this because if 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 you're willing to do that fine if you have the means to do that fine but if you don't you know, maybe if you wait two to three years, your company will not be more valuable. Maybe you will not have succeeded at building any more value. And maybe some of the buyers that may have been interested in you will have moved on and, and gone for another. So I think that um, everybody will know what is a reasonable investment and effort uh, that they're willing to go through. And when, you know, it's, it's time, you know, to call it quits. So I think that the standard formula, like even if there is one, I don't think that it works. In my experience, you know, everybody's different. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's get back to uh, building an exit plan or strategy. Olga, do people need professional advice, or is this something that one could perform a quick study or market research or something like that and come up with a, a plan and a possible value for their company's worth? I think that the combination of both things is advisable. 
because I have known people that, you know, when, when they have engaged with me, they have done their research, uh, they have done their thinking, they have engaged, you know, uh, different people along the way, you know, to give them advice as well. I mean, and they, and they have said to me, well, I started thinking about this a few years ago, and then I decided to make this change. I realized that I was uh basically not doing the company any favors by 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 uh, gathering you know so much of the decision making myself so i started empowering the team so that if i wanted to sell the company you know the company couldn't go on you know without me and and they have basically created that sort of like um um, they've done their own research, they've engaged people and others they say no no i mean completely like i'm i'm going to get like these trusted advisors and I'm going to go with what they, they want. My advice is a combination of the two, because even if you engage, you know, good professionals in your cockpit, you know, the, the consultant, the broker, the financial advisor, the accountant, the lawyer, and even, you know, some people engage valuators, all that is fine. But I think that when you understand, you know, yourself, um what what's going on and and where you fit you know in that in that kind of context conversations become a lot easier uh, because it means that you are not you're not necessarily surprised by things or you are not overcoming certain resistance but you are you know what's going on you know where you fit and you are able to engage help that is particularly tailored to the things that you need professional advice on but then i mean like some people say i don't need anybody i can go <laughs> into it on my own and i'm just going to be guided by you know my own wisdom and my own gut feeling and that's respectable too understand and uh, with that um, let's focus for a moment on the mindset of uh, entrepreneurs how many of them are ready to exit when they're close to retirement age i think I, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think that some people understand that they want to retire. Uh, you know, in the words of a few people, it's like, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've had enough. I mean, it's right. not just about selling for a particular value. It's just that I don't see myself, you know, uh, getting up in the morning and continuing, you know, uh, you know, to, 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 to grow this business or, or keeping it afloat or, or whatever it may be. So, they face that kind of contradiction sometimes that it's like uh, I want the best value and I, and I want to make sure that it it it's basically taken over by a company that is a is a worthy a worthy company, but at the same right. time I I just don't want to be engaged anymore. So there is that contradiction between, you know, uh, I want to I want to sell, I want to hand over, and the fear of letting go. I think that a lot of people have. Even before they contemplate selling, they have contemplated a succession plan. They have contemplated, do I hand it over to family, like my children or or, or my staff, um, like my trusted staff that have been with me, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them, they will have tidied things up, uh, even if it's not very intentional or deliberate, but just kind of like making sure that that we get there. But a lot of them, they will have perhaps run out of uh, steam or run out of ideas on, on what to do next, which is why, you know, a lot of company owners that want to retire, they will not have seen like phenomenal growth in the years prior to retirement unless unless they have worked on that succession plan and there's somebody else kind of on the day-to-day -day kind of um, business uh and the hardest kind of stuff about the business and they are, have already taken a step back. Unless they have done that, I mean, the, the likelihood is that the, 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 that the business is, is okay, but might not be, you know, in the, in the highest curve of growth. So mentally they may be ready or they may not. Psychologically and emotionally they may be ready or may not. But the business sometimes is almost like overdue for for a handover uh you know and when and when you talk to people 
they say that they that they have struggled with it. So some people they have to postpone their retirement. I mean, sometimes like people say, I wish I I could retire right now, but I realize that I can't. I realize I need to go on and I need to, you know, keep going, you know, for a few more years yet. I'm I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs are very emotional about their companies. You mentioned it yourself. After all, they have spent years of sweat and hard work to build those companies. How should they decide what is best for the future of their organization? How should they determine if their staff will be looked after if they sell their organization? I think that the best thing that you can do is to have the the frank discussions uh, when you are uh, talking to buyers and that you qualify the buyer not only, I mean, it's important to qualify the buyer as in do they have the financial backing in order to complete the acquisition. Right. That's an important point. But qualifying the buyer as well in terms of what's the culture um what are they what are they looking for and are they uh, willing to basically incorporate you know um uh, the the bulk of my staff and my experts into their organization and provide them with career paths and growth so those reeling the movie forward and discussing post merger scenarios i think that they need to be part of the discussion uh, during the, the M&A process. And one piece of advice would be to really beware of the deal structure. Uh, we talked about the, the post-merger integration issues um, that colleagues of mine have discussed with you. The deal structure can determine uh, whether uh, people will be helped or hindered during the integration and in belonging to this you know, bigger, uh, bigger entity. So I think that when these discussions pop up and people speak frankly and candidly, you know, about them, uh, it can help you, you know, shape your mind about certain things. And you can even, you can even make certain things part of the deal, you know, as in, uh, I would like, you know, that, uh, you know, that this is handled by my staff because they know how to handle this portfolio of clients and at the very least for this kind of couple of years if I'm on an earnout they will be part of my team and they will help me succeed you know get the earnout but they will also help the uh, combined entity succeed in their business goals let's talk about legacy and I, I think it's a good time that we cover this subject uh, all entrepreneurs want to leave a legacy behind. Do buyers normally care about the vision and legacy of an entrepreneur? If the buyers and the culture of the buyer is inclusive uh, of that vision and that legacy, and it has come up in these conversations as I was referring to, uh, then, then, then yes, because they want to make sure that they bring that on board that basically the acquisition enriches, you know, the company and and it it basically brings the best uh, of all worlds. If the buyer does not have this vision of inclusivity and and they are only focused on the the parts of the engine that they want to pick, then no, then that legacy might die on the vine eventually or might be forgotten about. Um, And this, I mean, of course, the, 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 the staff of the, of the acquired entity can help keep it alive, but if it's not being um, encouraged and if it's not being uh, included, uh, the, the buyer's culture will prevail. And it may be a bit of a challenge in, 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 in organizations that are being uh, built uh, by acquisition, as in you have private equity investors that engage, you know, a team that will start buying companies in order to build a bigger entity. This may be a challenge because it means that the culture is a culture in the making. So, um, so again, you know, my advice is, is to have these kind of discussions uh, while the deal is negotiated. For, for some entrepreneurs, the option of handing down the business to someone in the family sounds very appealing. You just talked about that. What are the pros and cons of doing that versus going into an M&A deal? Okay, so the pros, I mean, a lot of 
a lot of businesses are family-owned businesses, and like the pro right. of being able to hand it down, you know, to to your children, uh, you know, is that that the ownership stays in the family, and it means that there is a there is a legacy being built, and you know, perhaps it can carry a generation. I mean, maybe maybe you hand it down, you know, to your children, and your children can engage investors that can help the company grow, and it becomes you know, something that you couldn't even imagine. So I think that that's, you know, if, if, if you have people in the, in your, in your family, uh, that can, that can share with you that sort of like zest for building something great. Uh, right. and then it's something, it's something to be considered. Why not? I mean, like, like we have a, a good few example of those, but if you don't have that, I mean, if basically, if if members of your family may be happy owners, but not happy builders <laughs> or happy CEOs operators. or operators, exactly, um, then, I mean, you might be better off selling. And you could make uh, um, your, the family part of the deal. You could basically say... Um, you know, my 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 son or daughter uh, are the 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 chief marketing officer of my company, and they've been doing a good job. They want to stay. Uh, can we ensure that they are you know part of this because they would like to continue, you know, with the backing of a bigger company or, or whatever? So you can choose to sell and still you know get your family involved in the deal. Uh, and uh, not only have a position, but get equity, uh, you know, whatever uh, is up for discussion in that deal. Do you think, Olga, that our industry possesses the right tools and information for M&As to happen successfully and smoothly? Is there a knowledge gap that should be bridged? I think that more and more uh, in recent times, uh, there are a number of publications uh, in the industry that are uh, well respected and, and run by great professionals that provide reports, you know, and a wealth of information to keep you in the loop, uh, not only uh, about what's going on, but also, you know, in, in you know, best practices. And also there, there are conferences, uh, you know, that cover these topics and even you know, um, you know, with my colleagues at, at Lion People Global, I mean, since we are providing this intelligent matching with, between buyers and sellers, we have online sessions that, you know, people attend and they seem to get a lot out of it that are informative and they are not so much, you know, a lecture, but they are more in, in conversational format. People can ask questions, you can bring guests, people that have sold their companies, people that have bought companies, you know, um, I think that more and more you have all this information available right. that you don't necessarily have to pay a fortune for that that will give you the information that you that you need but i think that um if i can name a knowledge gap uh what what i would say is is those things that sometimes you may not want to hear but that you need to hear um that are not uh basically rosy uh, but did, did you need to, did to you need to take into account in order to grow your company or to sell it for the value that you want and I'm, I'm i'm finding that sometimes this is just to give you an example i mean some companies say oh but they say that the that the average in the industry is eight, eight times EBITDA and you kind of say well no <laughs> no it's not average i mean in order to get eight times EBITDA that's good. I mean, it basically means that you have, you know, you have a good company in your hands and that, that it has a lot of potential. So like the purchasing consideration is taking into account that the buyer is seeing something really good or maybe, you know, you have something so hot in your hands that there are certain buyers competing for it. And then you, you are basically emerging from it, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with good value. But I think that there are some myths that people are uh, kind of feeding on sometimes that uh, they need to be you know challenged but they need to be challenged by 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 a few of us uh, you know together with you know everybody who is in, interested in the topic because otherwise there there there, there are sometimes inflated expectations and sometimes i really uh, i really wonder um 
you know, what is encouraging that, you know, telling people what they want to hear, you know, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to something that can really help them. Because at the end of the day, I mean, those of us, you know, like myself and, and you know, other colleagues, I mean, we, we are here to help people, you know, get what they want. But sometimes uh, you do need to hold that mirror to say, you know, there are a couple of things we need to work on here. Um, and, and the market speaks for it. Uh, um, that is a little bit like the knowledge gap is not so much a knowledge gap, but, you know, some some kind of myths and legends, uh, you know, that, that, that need to be, you know, taken apart a little bit. And uh, Olga, tell me, where do you see the mergers and acquisitions landscape for uh, localization industry heading in the next 24 months? Well, I mean, I see um, I see more consolidation happening. Uh, you know, the, like for for companies that are serial buyers, uh, I think that they they will uh, you know continue. Uh, they will continue on that uh, you know shopping spree, and I I see more and more uh, disruptive companies entering you know the market um, that are being set up they are raising finance and are being set up in order to be grown and sold. So I think that um, that some of them, uh, they are, you know, right at that point where they are generating interest. But as usually happens in these intense, you know, M&A cycles, um, some of them, for some of them, it might be too soon. Some of them, they might you know, succeed in getting the market share that will get them sold. Um, and, and some of them, you know, they, they, uh, they might need to, you know, uh, wait a little bit longer. But uh, I think that the activity that we saw coming to, you know, grinding to a halt a little bit at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, uh, certainly it's, it's very lively right now. So I, I expect that... Um, I expect that to continue because even in times of even in times of crisis, this activity you know does not does not stop, and as we have seen in in recent surveys published, a lot of companies have continued to grow, you know during the the COVID pandemic because the 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 industries where they were, you know they are strong and they are uh, they are uh, going through the crisis and emerging, you know at the other end. Uh, not so touched like, for example, the travel industry. So um, I think that uh, a lot of companies I have seen, they have gone through double-digit growth in COVID times, and, and that makes them even more valuable because they, they have proven that they are solid. As we reach the end of this uh, conversation, this interview, please share the one piece of advice, Olga, that our executives listening to us today should incorporate into their strategic exit thought process? Um, define your end game. You know, wishful, wishful thinking alone is not enough. Uh, you need to think about what you want and, and where you want to get to. You need to visualize that and then work backwards from there. Because when you work backwards from there and you arrive at where you are today, you can take a look at yourself, you know, take a hard look at yourself, take a hard look at your business, um, understand where you are or get somebody to help you if you don't see things clearly and then ask yourself am I prepared to do all these things that are needed to be done uh, in realistic terms um, and then decide how intentional and deliberate you want to be so define define what you want and define it very clearly and take the time that you need to define it clearly Thank you very much for all of that information. Olga, that was an interesting and fun interview. Uh, again, I want to thank you for sharing the insights and experiences you had with the community and our listeners. Our goal of educating our entrepreneurs is met here, even if one of them uh, was able to make an educated decision based on their learnings from this podcast episode today. With that, I would like to keep the door open for future talks on this subject. And again, it was very nice talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you as well. And, uh, you know, hope we can, uh, we, can, we can chat again sometime soon. Looking forward to it.
M&A will continue to be top of mind for executives in this industry. I think we will see a lot more activity throughout this year and beyond. It is natural for larger companies to acquire smaller or similar size organizations for a number of strategic reasons as discussed in my interview with Olga. Executives and business owners must welcome the idea that one day they will naturally have to move from their business and think of ways that would best reflect on their legacy. Merging with another organization is a good and strong business case and should be celebrated as that indicates that the entrepreneur was able to grow a business that creates the type of value that another company is willing to buy the entire entity. We have heard on the subject from several experts in the past. Make sure that your organization works with proper structure, you have documented processes, your customers are happy and most importantly you are trying to accomplish something that is unique to your organization which will make your company a great acquisition target in your sector. That was a great interview with Olga Blasco. She has shared interesting insights and presents us with the information to make educated decisions today to prepare our companies for future acquisition. She has laid out the groundwork for preparing an organization for an acquisition and how to get to that mindset. Subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Make sure you give this podcast a thumbs up or five star rating wherever it is offered for listening. In addition, your comments are very important. Keep sending them. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.